Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. This week, we're talking to two luminaries in the arts world who are also a married couple. Hank Willis Thomas is an internationally renowned American conceptual artist. Through photography, sculpture, video, and mixed media, his art explores race, gender, ethnicity, and protest. His most recent public work, The Embrace, is installed on the Boston Common. It's a sculpture that pays homage to the work and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. Hank's mother is the historian, curator, and photographer Deborah Willis, who was recently awarded the $200,000 Don Tyson Prize by the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. We're also joined by Rujeko Hockley, who goes by Rue, assistant curator at the Whitney Museum of American Art. Rue is a former assistant curator for the Brooklyn Museum and is also a member of the Whitney's Emerging Artist Working Group. Hank and Rue talk about what artists can do during times of change and what art tells us about American and global politics. Welcome, Rue. Thank you, Farai. It's wonderful to be here. And welcome, Hank. Thank you, Farai. It's great to be here with you and Rue. Well, I have spent some wonderful social time with you in New York and just have loved seeing you two flourish individually. You are married and you have two young children and your kids get an incredible compliment of artists and thinkers in the family. Both of you, Hank's mother, the curator and artist Deborah Willis, his father, who's a musician and scientist, and Rue, I understand you lived all over the world as a child, starting your life in Zimbabwe, where your mother is from, which is also where my dad is from. And so you have an interracial, international family, an international background. What do you bring, Rue, to the table for your kids as they're starting their lives with this incredible family? I think one of the greatest gifts that my parents and that my upbringing has given me, I have always felt that there's no room that I can't enter. There's no conversation I can't be a part of. There's no space that is not for me. I was a product of an interracial, intercultural, international partnership and family. And thus, just in my regular life, I was navigating a lot of different spaces, a lot of different people, a lot of different conversations. And I was made to feel like that was normal. I think that is something that has served me so well in my life. And I really think it is one of the greatest gifts my parents gave me that I really hope to impart to our children, just this a sense of belonging, a sense of self-assuredness, a sense of kind of deep confidence in yourself that carries you through the world. And Hank, I remember meeting you when you were quite a young man with your mother, who I met first, and she's obviously a force in the art world. How do you see your line with your mother and father and your connection to your kids as well and what you're teaching them about the world? Well, primarily, I think that the the greatest gift that I was given was unconditional love and faith in my humaneness. I got a lot of that from my mother's mother, uh, my grandmother, Ruth Willis, who just passed away at 100 years old. She was a quiet, graceful, loving, powerful person. My father's mother um, 
was also very powerful, but very forceful. The biggest consistency in our parents, I would say, is an independent streak. Um, <laughs> and that independent streak is something that we see already in our daughters and that we can't help but to impart on them. And I also think growing up with parents who were chasing their dreams, you actually are also given the responsibility of doing that in your own life. Yeah. I wanted to start with the word that you used, humaneness. You bring so much of that, Hank, to your work. What does that word humaneness mean to you in terms of how you approach your practice? Well, I think it's important to distinguish humaneness from humanness. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. Because humans are complicated. They are often destructive and not self-aware. And I believe that humaneness is a, an appeal to the sweeter side, the softer side, the more compassionate side, the more love and collective-oriented side of the human experience. And that humaneness is something that I think is not highlighted that much in public life, or if it is, it's somewhat dismissed. I really see a lot of celebration of violence, of abuse, and of exploitation in our entertainment, in our news, and most things we see in the world. So I find it an incredible creative opportunity to explore humaneness in my practice. Yeah. You have a brand new work in Boston, in the Boston Common, prime real estate. So can you tell us about this most recent installation and also what does public work do for you in terms of how you engage with the world? Great. Well, thank you for asking. Most of the art we see in our society is either on our devices, our, our TV screens, or on billboards and bus stops. So public space primarily when it comes to creative expression is devoted towards commerce. I've spent a lot of time exploring commerce and critiquing commerce and of course, <laughs> just being immersed in commerce. But I feel like it's important to highlight and make more public space that is dedicated to expansion of thought, community, consideration, memorial, and monumentalizing not only people, but also ideals that our society should hold dear. Having gone to high school in D.C., where there actually are more public monuments probably than anywhere else in the country, I became super familiar with the monuments to the fallen of the Vietnam War and to the, the celebration of Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, all of whom are primarily celebrated or memorialized because of their relationship to violence and war. And I think that we reap what we sow when we celebrate violence and commemorate violence. We create more space for that to be our orientation in society. And I have been excited to bring monuments that are oriented towards unity and optimism and love. We know about civil rights, but we don't know much about civic joy or civic love. And this idea that 
Cornel West put into the world that I think justice is what love looks like in public. That's almost an artist statement for me when I think about public art. What does love in public look like? You know, and so this brand new Embrace Monument that is a commemoration to Dr. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King. This is very much inspired by a photograph on the day that he received the Nobel Peace Prize. And we don't really see a lot of pictures of the Kings as human beings. Like there's a glee on his face, you know, and a pride on her face in this moment of just celebration and community and teamwork. And I felt like I wanted to highlight this idea that they were a partnership, they were a collaboration for a lot of reasons from patriarchy to this idea of hero worship. I feel like her stature as an equal partner in everything that he did has not been highlighted. But in this picture, you see the weight of his body on her shoulders. You see her holding him up. I feel like when I really think about his legacy, she's the one who carried it on. She continued the work of Dr. Martin Luther King and the activists of her generation for decades while also raising children. And I can't imagine that level of strength, that level of care and grace that she exhibited and the way that they embraced each other. They were able to really touch almost everyone in the world through compassion, care, commitment, nonviolence, and community-oriented engagement. And the fact that any two people through embracing one another can have a ripple effect for generations is something that I wanted to highlight. It's a really amazing design. It's got incredible architecture of the form of the arms and the positioning of it and strength. Congratulations on that. And Rue, what's giving you life right now? I mean, you are so accomplished. You've done so many things in the art world. I loved something that you said, and I can't remember where it was, where you were like, everybody thinks I created my career overnight, you know, curating things can take years. So what's giving you life right now? What are you working on right now? Well, I don't know when I said that, but correct, that is true. (laughs) Um, I think one of the things that's giving me life the most right now is actually returning in a meaningful and regular way to the space of my office. Mm. I think that though I have, I deeply appreciate kind of a hybrid schedule, especially with two young children. I underestimated actually how much it means to me to be in the physical space of the museum, to be in the galleries. This is something that I think Hank and I have in common is a real love of people and a real love of the public. There's a lot of complications around museums and working in institutional spaces, but the thing that I continuously come back to is the public. So right now I'm working on a collection show based on the Whitney's collection, which will open in this summer of 2023. The Whitney is 100 years, give or take, old. The show that I'm working on is not focusing on the entirety of the collection, but is looking at maybe the last 50 years, let's say, and looking at kind of the idea of inheritance and how Mm. inheritance, whether that be genetic, familial, ancestral, or kind of ideological, um, just the ways in which 
something is passed from the past or from the back to the front, if you will. But yeah, I have to say it's it's giving me life to be around my colleagues and to be in the museum with the public. And it's an incredible yeah. thing to see people really flocking to the museum in a way that I haven't seen them in years, literally years. You know, both of you obviously being so deeply embedded in the art world, do you still enjoy just sort of randomly seeing art? I do, but, you know, ask my kids if they do. <laughs> I think one of the things that the way you we balance our time, it's so deep now. And so whereas in the past, I used to go to galleries on the weekends. Now, you know, our, they want to go to the playground or, you know, I took our older daughter to see the Brooklyn Nutcracker at King's Theater last weekend. And that's like a whole afternoon. So it's interesting the way to find the space to fit in the galleries. It's like during the week, honestly, during the work week, as opposed to kind of this leisurely Saturday activity with friends and colleagues that it used to be. No, I can only imagine that. You know, reality is that little humans have their own agenda and they don't always they don't always find it stimulating to stand in one place staring at something indefinitely. Coming back to you, Hank, you know, a lot of the work that you've done has the ability to have complex messages and do it in ways that can be rendered symbolically and readable. Everything from the Nike swoosh that you embedded into one of your artworks to your public artwork. How do you try to combine complexity and readability in your art? Someone once said that my work at its best is minimal maximal or maximal minimal Mm -hmm. (laughs) that there's like a very profoundness but also something that is relatively simple maybe that's just how i see the world (laughs) where i can be like Mm -hmm. in awe of the spectacle but also find something really powerful and resonant and deep and i can literally find something metaphoric and hopefully pretty deep in like watching like the watching a Disney cartoon <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or as much as just looking at several trees on a street. I find the the world and art to be such a fascinating landscape that it's it is it is our world or maybe each of us in a sense is a universe. And so I'm constantly exploring the universe and having been trained originally as a photographer, we capture moments. We look at the complex world and attempt to tell a story about it within two-dimensional plane and four-sided frame in a split second of time and what we can capture with our camera. And so I think what I attempt to bring to my broader art practice is this photographer's view on sculpture or video art or public art or painting or printmaking, which is really about wonder and uh, resonance. And then you're also doing Four Freedoms. You're a co-founder of that with Eric Gottesman, and you have done a bunch of really interesting creative collaborations with the 50 State Initiative, billboards in 50 states ahead of the 2018 midterms and town halls. And, you know, I it, it makes me so happy to see this way of, like, combining uh, an awareness of society and politics with art. And, and obviously, 
You are the co-founder, Hank, but Rue, I've seen you at, at many of these events. For both of you, what does it mean to have this space to really think about how creative collaborations can function in a civic space? Well, I always say that Four Freedoms lives in our house. So our, <laughs> our, third, our first child definitely found it in our house and has residence still in our home. You know, one of the greatest things about Four Freedoms, which of course is only the most recent of Hank's kind of many collaborations, to me, one of the most interesting things and most important things about Hank's practice as an artist, which is of course me as his wife saying that, but also me as a as a professional curator, what he does in terms of collaboration is singular. His kind of longstanding commitment to working in collaboration across time, across genre, across medium, across concept is really unique. So I think what I learned from from my kind of forays into that space of collaboration, um, you know, I'm an Aquarian, so this is not always our special, our forte. We like Mm -hmm. to do things on our own, in our way. But um, (laughs) what I have learned and continue to learn, both from observing the collaboration and the kind of ups and downs and ins and outs and the very, very, very highs and sometimes the very, very, very lows of working in that way, is there's just so much potential. The most recent project that Four Freedoms worked on, on Roosevelt Island here in New York, that was looking at eyes on Iran. In the lead up to the UN's vote to remove Iran from the International Council on Women, um, it was really amazing to see it come together so quickly, so generously, so dynamically, and then see the kind of intense impact that it had. So I think what I really learned from watching Hank work is how much is possible when we do collaborate and how much bigger not only our vision and impact can be, but our experience and actually what we as individuals take from it. So I try to to bring that to my own practice and to my own work and to think about the work. The work that I do is inherently collaborative also. I mean, being an institutional curator, you work across the museum. But I've learned a lot about how to collaborate, how to kind of bring people in, how to really listen to your collaborators, to your colleagues, and how to actually enable and encourage people to then do that same, to work in that same way as they move forward. And so seeing that kind of ripple move out to the world. Yeah. And Hank, I've been to a few of the different gatherings you hold. There was the big event in Washington Square Park, and there's just so much energy. You have a lot of different branches of kind of how you manifest in public. What does that give you um, and the world, you think, to, to have this part of your practice? Well, I think a lot about Walt Whitman's Song of Myself and the famous line um, somewhere in the midst of it where he says, do I contradict to myself? Very well, then. I contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. And I think as, well, I know, as an African-American man whose humanity has often, both through society, but also within our community and our peers and in ourselves, is often reduced and even dismissed. Having a diverse practice for me is a way to see my own reflection, to see myself in the multitudes. And I have really been dedicated to 
I am the world that I see. Like who I am is is all that I interact with. And so when I collaborate with another artist or another person or a person who doesn't see themselves as an artist, I actually am in greater connection with myself. And we don't realize that everything that we do in our life is a creative practice. Like from the moment we get up and walk out of our houses, we are performing. The clothes we put on is our mm. costume. The yes. way that we walk, the way that we talk, the who we do say hello to, who we don't say hello to, how we do it. It's all a collaboration, right? And mm -hmm. the more conscious we are about the fact that life is a creative venture at the end of the day. <laughs> like we've, we're not robot thoughts. We're organic and inherently creative beings. The better off we all are. And so with a lot of the work that Rue has done with uh, her sh show long ago, Crossing Brooklyn, where she highlighted artist collectives or We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women, the fact that there were all these black female artists who were working both individually but also collectively towards a much larger mission mm -hmm. is what I am attempting to do just more clearly with my collaborations like Four Freedoms and the Wide Awakes. And it is incredible to, to think that within the context of Women Life Freedom, which was in Eyes on Iran, that our project w was seen by a billion people either in person or online. It, it's pretty incredible That's to think amazing. that. Yeah, it's it's the fact that the United Nations Commission for the Status of Women, <laughs> the idea of having Iran removed was not something that was even seen as feasible or possible at the time we started our project. White papers can only do so much to tell a story. And activists are critical. But what artists bring is an, a challenge to the mind and to the heart to imagine the impossible and then make it actual, real. You know, both of you are just such incredible innovators and clearly people who also enjoy each other and enjoy life. I'm sure that you have your tortured artist and tortured curator moments, but you also seem to actually be enjoying the path that you're on in life, you know, with all of its challenges. Do you feel that way? Tortured? Yeah, I do feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I you can answer. No. Me not tortured. Jeez. Hank has his tortured artist moments. I mean, it's of course. No, I have my tortured moments as well. Again, Aquarius, as I said. Um, but no, I think that is to kind of return to your first question. I think that is actually another one of the great gifts both of our sets of parents really gave us is, you know, a real sense of joie de vivre and a real sense mm -hmm. of like life is for living. And you only get to do yeah. it once. I think that's something that we both kind of come by honest and I'm very grateful for. Um, and, you know, we have a great time and we get to do something that most people, as Hank said, our life is all creativity, everyone's life. But I think to get to do that as, you know, your official kind of calling is really special. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you both all day, but is there anything else that I haven't asked about that you'd want to reference? I mean, your bodies of work are so expansive. I want to give you the chance to bring up anything that we haven't talked about. I think one of the things that 
we see when we engage with artists in scale, which I've had kind of the great opportunity and privilege to do on a couple of different occasions, most recently the 2019 Whitney Biennial, which I co-curated with Jane Panetta. I think one of the things that most blew us away about the experience of doing the biennial was how much it meant to people. The biennial is the longest running survey of American art. I think that we see so much about art and the market, about auction results, about, you know, all of these things that are are true and valid and that the biennial absolutely feeds into. But what I took away from the biennial and what I took away from working with artists for two years is just how deeply invested they are. Hank says often that artists are one of the only kind of segments of the population that will pay other people to do their work. <laughs> whether that be through studio rent mm-hmm. or buying materials and and on and on, or just like not being able to make a living, but still doing it. I think, you know, yeah. we wanted a revolution. The other show that I worked on at the Brooklyn Museum, I was working with these, these artists who were in their, sometimes in their 80s, in their 90s. Betty Saar was in her 90s when we did that show, and she had impeccable records that she had kept of all of her own sales from the 1950s. And we were able to find a piece, you know, we were reading a magazine, feminist magazine from the 70s, saw an incredible, a title um, of a piece, another iteration of her Aunt Jemima series. And we were able to actually find the piece because she had records of who she'd sold it to. She traded it to her lawyer in exchange for legal services in the 1970s. And the lawyer had had passed and his widow had the piece in her home in Soho. And it was in the exhibition and it subsequently entered the Brooklyn Museum's collection. And it was only possible because Betty Sarr believed so deeply in herself, had such a sense of trust in the future and this knowledge that like somewhere out there, somebody's going to care about what I do. I'm going to keep these records. Like, to mm-hmm. me, that is just, it's so incredible and such an incredible gift that artists give us is this ability to just persist and believe in yourself, um, which I think it, it's a lesson for, I think, everybody. Just not, it's not only about having a creative practice in that sense, but I think it's about kind of persistence and how we move and make change in the world. The things that we're doing right now, we don't know how they will impact the future. We don't know who is looking. We may not be alive to see them. You know, and that applies whether in our personal lives, with our families, with our friends, it applies in our professional lives, it applies in our kind of macro, the person we see on the street and how we interact with them and how we make them feel. We don't know where that's going to go and where that's going to take them and what impact they will have on another person. And so I try to just stay grounded in that in that longevity and in that belief um, in the future and in the potential of the future. I love that. And I love the example of Betty Saar. And she's obviously so incredible, but also, you know, had that vision about the worth of her work and of herself. And the it's worth really herself, because I don't think artists, you know, what's so crazy. I don't think any artist of that generation expected to make a living and some, you know, you know, make like a like a solid living, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting to see that expectation shift also, which I'm all for. Artists should make more than a living. Absolutely. And Hank, do you have anything else you want to add? Sure. Well, this is a time for optimism, mm-hmm. if there ever was one. 
um, our society is often painted as being kind of on the verge of coming to an end or having uh, conflict destroy us. And these are times where positive thinking, positive action, creativity, creative action, collaboration, uh, belief that repair is possible, healing is possible, other people have something incredible and positive to, to offer to our lives is will be the bridge between uh, this or or between these two potential polarities, I guess, whether or not uh, what I think a lot about is uh, the last lines of uh, Martin Luther King's book, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, where he's, uh, he says, mankind has a choice between violent co-annihilation or nonviolent coexistence. Mm -hmm. uh, so do we choose chaos or community? And I think this is that inflection point where we really do have an opportunity to choose community. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm betting on. And that's what I'm, I'm rooting for. Well, I say yes to all of that. And I say yes to both of you. You have brought me joy just by watching the work that you've curated and produced and how you navigate the world. So Rue and Hank, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having us, Farai. Thank you. That was American conceptual artist Hank Willis Thomas and art curator Rujeko Hockley. You can find Thomas's latest public installation, The Embrace, at the Boston Common Public Park. And Eyes on Iran, originally installed at the Franklin D. Roosevelt For Freedom State Park, can be seen on Instagram at Four Freedoms. That is F O R Freedoms. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. Joining me this week is Karen Atia, Washington Post columnist and a contributor here at Our Body Politic. Welcome back, Karen. Hey, Farai. Happy New Year. Glad yes, Happy back. New Year. 2023. I'm already buckling my seatbelt. I don't know about you. And another of our contributors that we also have joining us is entertainment correspondent for Scripps News, Casey Mendoza. Welcome back, Casey. Hey, Farai. So excited to be back. Yep. Always love having you. And so this week we are diving into pop culture. So I have been listening on audiobook to uh, Spare, the memoir by Prince Harry. And, you know, I have to say, among other things, it's given me some more perspective on what it's like to be an Apache helicopter pilot. One of my cousins was an Apache pilot in Afghanistan. Prince Harry was a Apache pilot in Afghanistan. And, you know, it's one of many fascinating details, though perhaps not the main reason people are tuning in. So the royal family is everywhere. You've got Netflix's Harry and Meghan. You've got Spare. You've got um, kind of like the... Um, firewall of the royal family saying, we're not going to say anything to Harry ever again for his whole life. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the implication. So, so Karen, you wrote about the importance of Megan's story in a recent column. Um, what was your reaction to the documentary? I think a lot of things. I mean, I think they were trying to do a lot with, um, with the documentary, especially for Harry. I feel like you could feel that through the documentary for Harry to really take on the British tabloid media and its incestuous relationship with the palace. 
And in so many of the interviews that he's given, and even for me, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Princess Diana died. And even I remember back then they were saying that Harry in particular was struggling mm. with his mother's death and how he hated the media after that. Um, so it's like well, it certainly it, comes through in the memoir. It comes through, yeah, right. And in their decision to um, to sue over the inappropriate sharing and, and acquisition of the letter that Megan wrote to her father, right. Um, so I think that like you know base of Harry's long standing like contempt for the media was actually. A pretty good education, I think, for us here in, in the U.S. And I would say that the audience, I think, is more so for a U.S. audience than British, I would think, mm. um, was a really good media critique and a really good look at, frankly, what is corruption, <laughs> institutional corruption um, between the palace and the firm, which happens to be his family, and um, the media and the economics of all of that and the price, the human toll of all that. Let me get Casey in. Any thoughts, Casey, on the kind of rollout of um, the Meghan and Harry media projects or specifically the doc? Yeah, I mean, for both, I agree with Karen. I really see it as like them taking narrative control, which because of their profile, you know, I would be scared for them if they didn't have the level of control they had. I'm, I'm thinking about of course, Princess Diana and, you know, her untimely death. But I'm also thinking about a slew of the other biopics and documentaries that came out from, like, the controversy of Blonde to still the fandom over the crown or Pam and Tommy inventing Anna, etc. And, you know, Netflix just released its trailer for Pamela Anderson's documentary, Pamela, A Love Story, which is in response to, you know, the lack of narrative control she had, mm. um, both after her sex tape was stolen and distributed on the Internet, but also after Hulu debuted Pam and Tommy, which right. she did not have any, you know, narrative control over. Karen, you know, I I have really been watching this whole question of the complicated... Um, space that Megan occupies. And did you see that Politico put her on a list of narcissists that oh included former President Trump? And people people came out hard, like people were like, I'm canceling my, you know, subscription to Politico. I rather like Politico. I rely on it for a lot of news, but I thought that was a complete foul ball. I just I was just like, oh, so you needed diversity in your narcissist panel? I mean, like, what's going on? I don't know why Megan triggers the the psychosis <laughs> in yeah. so many people around the world. And look, like, and I, I said this in my piece, and it was mentioned in the documentary. And I feel like it's it's something that's been under the surface, right? That a, so much of the online abuse for Megan has come from, frankly, white women. Um, and it, it specifically mentions this in in the documentary. And you know, um, the Politico author <laughs> of that piece, also um, a white woman. And I think it's it, it lends itself to the debate or to the conversation about so-called sort of feminism and, and allyship between women of color uh, and black women and white women, right? Um, and you just see some of the most fervent defenders of this hereditary monarchy that is so outdated and so patriarchal and tells the women in the family that their role is to be quiet and produce babies to continue the bloodline 
fiercely defending this like dangerous and outdated and misogynist institution. Uh, and I think with Megan as well, um, there's obviously a lot of discussion about her, especially from Black women, we're kind of like, we were writing hard for her. Look, I was too. You can search my Google history. I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. Black princess. Yeah. Like, look at the look at the wedding. They got a Black gospel choir. This is going to modernize or just revive interest in this institution that depends so heavily on being popular. And to see like how they were basically chewed up and spit out by this white institution. I mean, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, what did she expect? She literally married into the colonialists of all colonialists, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Should we feel sorry for her that she basically moved through most of her life with um, not being shielded from anti-Blackness? She said she didn't feel like she was treated like a Black woman until she married into this family. All of that is um, is ripe for discussion. But I think what we all can agree on is that Megan and Harry, by extension, really kind of served as a proxy symbol for a lot of us that have had to navigate white institutions that hoped, wanted to be able to participate in them and ended up being chewed up and spit out. You know, of, of course, they're, they're you know, rich and, and famous, but it does speak to the real trauma of when this happens and the abuse, particularly that Black women face in a lot of these spaces. So I still think that is why her story holds so much power for women um, of color and, and Black women around the world. Yeah. And I, and I will say that Harry has been very clear about the emotional damage that he feels he has sustained from his family not accepting his wife. Um, I will grant it to the royal family that in 2011, they decided that gender would not be a barrier to taking the throne. So had, you know, uh, William's first child been a girl, then she would have been the next monarch. But in um, Spare, uh, Prince Harry's book, he really talks about the othering that he felt from his family um, in general, but also regarding... Uh, his wife. But I have a lot of Black female friends who have faced moments with their husband's families that have been soul-crushing. And sometimes the husbands will step up and sometimes they won't. And that's painful. And one of the things I see here is that Prince Harry was like, if I have to choose, I choose you, boo, you know? Mm. And and that it's he's made a very clear choice. It has, I think, been inspiring to to watch him make that very, very, very bold choice. And hopefully he inspires other men who find themselves, white men, frankly, who find themselves in in interracial relationships to do similar, do the same thing. I want to switch to an entirely different topic. TikTok as a platform, there's recently been some revelations about how TikTok has some security issues. It apparently surveilled uh, a number of journalists, not a large number, but any number is not good, uh, using keystroke logging. And the question now is, uh, some people are, are really saying, look, TikTok is an incredible platform for getting your message out, but it may not be secure. Karen, how do you think about, you know, 
frankly, our team at Our Body Politic just had a discussion the other day about whether or not we should use TikTok based on security concerns. And I was like, we can only use TikTok on socials if we firewall our TikTok account from our news accounts because we do cover things like extremism and I'm not going to have keystroke logging on our devices. So how do you deal with the fullness of being a digital communicator, which you are? A digital communicator is also a geriatric millennial. I am at the point where I feel like I'm the type to like pass off my phone or like the remote to the kids and be like, help me figure this out. Um, But for me, when it comes to TikTok as a journalist, I think that the power that it's had to be able to um, not only move conversations, but frankly, even, you know, for the music industry, for instance, you know, the the musicians who were coming out, I think, last year and saying that they were under pressure from their labels to um, to go viral before they could release music. Um, right. And I think from like a journalistic perspective, it's just intriguing to see how TikTok and its algorithm has changed the calculations for so many industries that are conservative, I guess, by nature and want to see proof of success before taking a risk. Let me loop to something you said, Karen, to Casey. Karen was talking about how, you know, there's this pressure on artists to kind of be viral first. Now, a lot of the artists I know, they are jamming with people in their bedroom, you know, on devices. How do you think that that shapes the creative process? Yeah, it's actually a bit of a two-sided thing. And, you know, it's it goes beyond TikTok. It goes into, you know, the nature of Spotify, too, and how, quote, unquote, easy it is to put music on that platform. Um, because on the one hand, you know, I can, with a simple laptop or my smartphone, just like create a little song. I can jam that with my friends in a bedroom. That's actually a genre now, bedroom pop, where they're just, you know, making it at home. Um, But, you know, while it is easier to make that music and easier to put it on a platform like TikTok or Spotify or YouTube, um, it is so much harder now because there's so much out there to get the ears, to get the listeners, um, to find that engagement. And so the musicians that succeed or find viral content, oftentimes they have help. You know, TikTok, um, they have deals and partnerships with major labels. Um, there's this one song uh, that came out recently or in the past two years called ABCDEFU. Um, mm. And it's hilarious because uh the song was written by a musician who told her fans, um, you know, give me an idea for a song. And someone commented, uh, write a song based off the alphabet, I think. I, I don't oh, remember wow, exactly, yeah. but mm-hmm. it was based off of a comment. But mm-hmm. someone found out that the person that commented that actually also worked for the label. <laughs> um, the song did go viral. Uh, it's very popular. It's stuck in my head right now, unfortunately. Um, but, you know... Going back to, uh, Karen, what you said about artists needing to be viral on TikTok in order to put out new projects, that's so real for them. Um, and, you know, it's it, there's so much pressure to go viral and engage with fans and develop those audiences. Um, but it's so difficult, again, for new and emerging artists who don't have production help. And let's move on to another trend in pop culture, the return of live concerts. So, Casey, even with the latest strain of COVID, with inflation, with layoffs, people are ready to jam. So what are you hearing from fans and musical artists? 
Well, you know, from the past year, 2022, some of the biggest highlights were Bad Bunny becoming the highest grossing touring musician in, you know, Billboard history. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Elton John continuing his farewell tour. Um, globally, Taylor Swift announcing her uh, upcoming concert, which was a huge fiasco for Ticketmaster, causing that company major legal trouble. Um, but, you know, last year saw like a huge full force return to um, live music and concerts. Uh, again, though, uh, it was a big success for uh, established musicians who had the fan base who could afford to tour, who were signed with major labels. Uh, for indie musicians, for smaller local talent and artists, it's still really hard to tour because of the pandemic, because it takes so much more resources and so much time and so much, you know, um, existing partnerships and relationships with venues who are also, um, especially indie venues, still navigating the post-pandemic world. So, you know, we're still seeing that divide between very established artists versus new indie upcoming talent. And so finally, let's talk a little bit about all these biopics and historical dramas. There's the film Blonde about Marilyn Monroe. There was Elvis, which came out uh, a little while ago, and Till, based on Mamie Till Mobley and her pursuit for justice after her son Emmett Till was murdered in 1955. What has drawn viewers to these historic figures, and what do you make of the films that have been made about them? I think studios are drawn to... Uh, trauma porn now because that's what all of these are you know even Elvis Mm. even though it was fun um it was so focused on his you know obviously the difficulties of his drug addiction blonde even though it's my job to watch films I couldn't finish that just because Mm. it was so surrealist trauma porn um it wasn't entertaining or uplifting or gave her any sense of storytelling agency at all Um, And, you know, Till follows this like long line of black trauma films as well, which one of my favorite film critics, Robert Daniels, wrote about, you know, the context of Till in these lines of, you know, traumatic films and what that actually, you know, helps audiences learn um, from that. And Karen, did you get to see any of these? Yeah, I tried to watch Blonde, I could not get through it. And Casey Mm. is absolutely right. Just trauma porn. And also, you know, this was coming off of the heels of Kim Kardashian, like wearing uh, Marilyn Monroe's dress, right? Mm. Or allegedly damaging it. And it's just like, we know she was exploited in her lifetime. And it just seems that we're still feeding off of her like symbolic flesh all these years after her death. And in ways that, you know, especially with Blonde, it just felt so gratuitous. And it it feels like Hollywood is trying to substitute trauma and porn for brilliance and creativity. It is not the same. And I'm not saying, you know, that every biopic needs to be rosy and all of that. But it's just, it's becoming unwatchable (laughs) and, Mm. and boring to an extent. Thanks again, Karen, for joining us on Sipping the Political Tea. Thanks, Farai. Always good to be here. And thank you so much, Casey. Thanks so much for having me. That was Our Body Politic contributors Casey Mendoza, entertainment correspondent for Scripps News, and Washington Post columnist Karen Atia. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. 
Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm host and executive producer for Rye Chidea. Jonathan Blakely is our executive producer. Nina Spensley is also executive producer. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Steve Lack and Anoa Shanga are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Kelsey Kudak is our fact checker. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Schild and engineered by Harry Evans and Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.